Welcome to So Says Rick. Mostly True Stories by Rick Hall. Welcome to episode 21. Yes, we are just cruising along, aren't we? Yeah, and I think it's 21. I'm having a hard time keeping track. And that's good. That means we've done a lot of shows. Yeah. So, Rick, do you have any big news you want to tell our listeners? <laughs> well, that sounded really natural, Laura. Thank it you. did not sound pre-planned at all. <laughs> okay, yes, I do. I finished the audiobook that I've been recording for Phil Swan. It's called The Mozart Conspiracy, and it's available on audible.com. So when you look it up, look for Phil Swan, S-W-A-N-N, and the book is called The Mozart Conspiracy. You know what? I realized I should give a little disclaimer that this book is not probably PG-rated. It might even be R-rated because of some of the language. A couple characters drop the F-bomb here and there, and it is a murder mystery, so there is a, a bit of violence. But really, with everything we see on TV these days, I don't think anybody's going to be too surprised. And there's another Mozart conspiracy, isn't there? Yes, but it's not written by Phil Swan, and it's not And it's not near nearly as good. As good. No. Although the guy talks with a British accent. but That gives him bonus points, but still. Yeah. It might be that he's actually British. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got some big news, something new relative to the podcast itself, right? Right, and that sounded way more natural, Laura. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a guest storyteller this episode. A friend of mine named Fred Rubin has a great story about when he was a writer on TV shows. And the thing is, there's so many people behind the scenes on TV shows that you don't know about that keep things going. The shows we've watched for years. Somebody like Fred has been working for years and years and years. I think he said he worked 22 years consistently on TV shows. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, in this business. Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting because when you go on the set of a TV show, there are like so many people there. The first time I went on, I was like, who are all these people? I thought you just needed the actors and a few cameramen, and that was it. But the reality is they all have jobs, and they're necessary to the show. Yeah, there's so much behind the scenes. And Fred has been a part of some really well-known shows and has written some really great scripts. Yeah. He's also a he's also a musician and a darn nice guy. So I went over to Fred's house and recorded, and I have a new setup. So I did remote recording, but we were in his garage and we were social distanced. So he was about twenty feet away in his garage. He took off his mask, and when I interview him afterwards, you'll hear that I'm a little muffled because I kept my mask on just so we'd be safe. So Fred's going to tell a story about when he worked on the show Different Strokes. You may remember that one right and they booked an extra special guest Very on the special. show so fred's story is called did you call me tramp when you've worked in episodic television for a few years and a network executive shows up on your sound stage to announce we're spending big bucks on a guest star to bolster your ratings you know enough not to get too excited. They always start out with, we're trying to book George Clooney or Scarlett Johansson. But eventually, after several weeks of the network attempting to lock someone in, you end up writing your guest episode for Kirstie Alley or at best, 
Bob Saget. And when they show up, trust me, the vibe on the set is less than thrilling. However, in September of 1979, when I was a young story editor on the hit NBC series Different Strokes, I didn't know any better when an executive announced that we were getting Muhammad Ali as a guest star. It was thought that a perfect episode could be crafted featuring Ali sparring verbal jabs with the star of the series, the pint-sized elfin Gary Coleman. Hearing the announcement, the yeoman writers and producers just grumbled and nodded their heads knowingly, certain that we would instead end up with Meadowlark Lemon as a guest star. But I was thrilled at even the slightest possibility of meeting the greatest. This greatest was not the present-day Ali we have all come to know, the Ali who speaks softly and haltingly, who walks with cautious, measured, shaky steps, and whose voice quivers with vibrations brought on by the debilitating Parkinson's disease. This 1979 Muhammad Ali was a mountain of a man with fierce, piercing good looks who had been an Olympic boxing gold medalist and a Golden Gloves champion. This Ali had recently trounced George Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle, had beaten Joe Frazier in the Thrilla in Manila, and in 1978 had vanquished Leon Spinks, becoming the one and only three-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world. And at this point in time, he was arguably the most recognizable human being on the planet. I had good reason to be excited. And then a miracle happened. They actually booked Muhammad Ali. And in a flurry of creative activity, our staff set out to put together an episode entitled The Hero. In 1979, almost all the Norman Lear shows were videotaped in front of live audiences at KTTV, a small but vital studio in the heart of Hollywood. There was no advance notice that he had arrived on the lot, no fanfare, no entourage. Ali simply pulled his brand new beige convertible Rolls Royce into his assigned parking spot, walked into our main building and said, I'm here. We were in awe. His presence filled the doorway. His legend made everything seem surreal. He stood impeccably tailored in a stylish custom suit and cheerfully shook hands all around with every writer, producer, secretary, production assistant, cook, and gopher. Humbly, sweetly, he actually said, meeting every third person, I'm Muhammad Ali, just in case we might have been in comas the last 20 years and didn't know who he was. His cordiality and sweetness set the tone for what was to be a memorable week of readings, rehearsals, performances, and fun. Most guest actors show up and do the work. The rest of the time they stay in their dressing rooms, tucked away, secluded, and private. But the man known as the greatest hung out with us. He played games with us. He ate lunch with us and never for a moment stood apart or held himself above us. For example, he had this remarkable trick of rubbing his thumb and forefinger together with such strength that he could produce a sudden, loud, piercing sound. 
A dozen times, I watched him mischievously tiptoe up behind an unsuspecting secretary or stage manager, do the finger trick, and momentarily scare the hell out of him. And Ali's playfulness and generosity didn't end there. On a studio lot filled with hundreds of employees, Ali posed for a photo with anyone who asked. Occasionally, to the workers who were simply afraid or too shy to approach, he'd put his arm around them and holler, Somebody take a picture here! In my case, he not only posed with me for a shot, he let me sit behind the wheel of his Rolls Royce while he took my picture. Four days of rehearsal flew by all too quickly. Four very memorable days. Then, the week took an added turn that made it even more exceptional for me. My brother had called from Maryland, announcing that he and his wife and two young sons would be in L.A., and they had given me enough notice to arrange for them to be in the audience for the taping of The Hero. Once that was set, I sought out Ali to ask if I might bring my family backstage to meet him after the performance. I found him reciting a poem to one of the secretaries. When he finished, I asked my favor. Bring him by, Ali said. Be my pleasure. The performances that night went beautifully, and as predicted, the laughs were terrific, especially between Ali and Gary Coleman. Ali was totally comfortable in front of a live audience, even making fun of himself when he fumbled a line, which only endeared him more to everyone. When the taping was over, I rushed my two nephews, Ari 9 and Josh 6, backstage. I knew Muhammad Ali would not stay around too long. Both boys were dumbfounded when they met the champ. They stood silent and wide-eyed, like deers in headlights. But Ali drew them out, asking a few questions about school and such. Onlookers and crew in the hallway watched the sweet moment unfold. Finally, Ari, the oldest boy, bravely handed Ali a piece of paper. Could I get your autograph, please? Ever ready with a pen, Ali scribbled his autograph and handed the paper back. But before little Josh could do the same, Ali got called away by one of our executives, and he quickly strode off a good 15 yards further down the hall. Little Josh blinked with sadness and disappointment. He held up his own scrap of paper and yelled out, Wait, champ! You forgot me! The moment was pure cinema. Ali stopped dead in his stride and spun around on his feet with the athletic grace and speed for which he was legendary. He scowled and his brow furled, and with heavy attitude, he hollered back down the hall at my little nephew. Did you call me Tramp? The chatter in the hallway grew hushed as Ali advanced menacingly on the startled little boy. Josh's eyes widened, panicked. No, no, he squeaked. I, I called you Champ. No, you didn't, Ali barked, still playing the heavy. You called me Tramp. By now, except for my startled little nephew, everyone in attendance realized Ali was playing a joke on a six-year-old boy. Finally, he reached Josh and bent down nose to nose. Ali's scowl morphed slowly into a sly grin. 
And then Ali began to box with him. As gentle as this giant could, he slap-boxed using his open hands, fading left and bobbing right, tapping Josh gently on the cheeks, first one, then the other. And realizing he was no longer in any real danger, Josh put up his dukes and tried to fend off Muhammad Ali's taps. Of course, he couldn't get anywhere near Ali. After a minute or so, Ali stopped sparring. He signed the scrap of paper, ruffled Josh's hair, and took off cheerfully back down the hall. Those standing around watched him go, knowing they had witnessed something rare. Wow, I said to my nephew. I'll bet not too many little boys in Columbia, Maryland, can say they boxed with Muhammad Ali. Probably not too many, he replied with total seriousness. Hey, Fred, thank you so much for telling that story. What a great story that is. Oh, thank you. It, it was my pleasure. It was one of my favorite memories of, uh, of a long, long career in television. You've done a lot of shows over the years, haven't you? Yeah, I, I wrote and produced television for 22 consecutive seasons. Wow. And uh, including what is a, a period of time that would have been considered one of the golden ages of television. You know, it's funny, too. Uh, Fred and I met on the TV show Stand By Your Man, where I was Rosie O'Donnell's husband, which <laughs> might tell you how long ago that was. But yeah, we didn't know each other. And it turns out now we live four blocks from each other. Not only that, we went to the same university and we worked on a similar play together. Actually, I did not go to the U of oh. I. Oh, you didn't? No. What Fred is referring to is um, a show at New Salem State Park. What was it called when you were working on it? We called it Head of State. I worked on it and it was called The Great American People Show. And uh, John A. Hart, a director and teacher professor at the U of I, which you had as a as a director. Exactly. But he hired you to put the do the music for the show, wasn't well, it? Well, in college you don't get hired, but he he chose. I, I was a cast member in the original show, and I compiled all the music for it, and I performed it live on stage through every performance. I was one performer that was on stage the entire time. Wow. Playing guitar and banjo. Well, I did the show at New Salem State Park many years later. No offense. <laughs> Maybe you're a couple of years older than me. I don't remember. Um, so tell us a little bit about the shows you've done. You've done like Webster. You did like 200 episodes. Oh, no, right? no, I didn't do that many. I started early on on a CBS series with Ned Beatty that got canceled and uh, then went to work on uh, Different Strokes when it began, uh, the first two years of that. Uh, then I went to Archie Bunker's place. By the way, it's no insult saying you worked on a show that got canceled. Oh, All shows get canceled. That's true. As a friend of mine once said when he got fired off of a show, he said, if you haven't been fired in L.A., you haven't been working. Well, sometimes it's a pleasure to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, I did work uh, with, with Carol O'Connor for three years on Archie Bunker's Place. Oh, right. Uh, mm. And that was uh, quite an experience. Uh, a lot of great actors on that show, Martin Balsam and Mira. Uh, that, and that was, that was a wonderful experience. Just so people know, what was your job on the show? 
Well, I started just as a writer. I would help write. Okay, so. just just as a writer. There are people that would give their left arm to be a writer. Yeah. Like, keep going. But uh, what eventually happens in, in television, if you keep working, is uh, they groom you into leadership positions. So you become a higher-placed writer, and then you're, you become a person like called a producer who helps the other writers write and who helps rewrite every episode. And you continue to write your own episodes, and then eventually you can get involved in literally working on stage with the actors, which I think I did with you. Right. Um, you, if, if it works right and you stay in the business, you get promoted higher and higher with more responsibilities. Right. Even if you get fired, the next show hopefully will keep working for you. We have a, a mutual friend named Tom Reeder who has worked his way up in the business just like you. Good friend. Good guy. But he started um, as a uh, page seating audiences for live sitcoms. Right. And ended up being one of the best writers in L.A., you know. He has a resume that is practically unequaled by any other writer. Right, right. He worked on Frasier. He worked on Barney Miller. He worked on Night Court. He's MASH. A, he started with MASH. MASH. He? he worked on um, The Cosby Show. I mean, he, just one right after another. And Stand By Your Man with You and Me. That's right. <laughs> In fact, that's where I met Tom. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, look at this. The audience is finding out um, my history at the same time I am. It's been great to have you on and uh, give our uh, my friends back home, especially a little glimpse of uh, the kind of the humanity that we find in L.A. Because I know sometimes people think living in L.A. is this cold, um, you know, cold world where stars aren't very nice. And you know what? There are some really great stars out there. By far, my experiences were with people that were professional and caring and fun to be around. Yeah, there's always the rare crackpot. Oh yeah, it's just just a total pain. Right, but, right. But but almost across the board, most of the people you end up working with are, are are pretty wonderful. Well, and I would count you as one of those people. I enjoyed working with you, and thanks for doing my podcast. So says Rick. My pleasure. You're my first guest. I must tell you, I'm thrilled and honored. <laughs> you set your standards a little low, there, Fred. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. Well, good job with the remote recording there, Rick. Thank you, honey. That's my yeah. first time with my new rig. Yeah, catching the storyteller in his natural environment. I trapped the storyteller in his garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we did, you know, uh, set it up almost like a studio because we shut the garage door. There you go. There's a big step right there. You know, after hearing Fred tell that story, I think maybe we should do an episode of So Says Rick where we tell some insider stories about shows we've worked on. Yeah, that's a great idea. Because, well, you've done more than I have, but, you know, we've been around the blog. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Um, and actually, Laura worked on not only Whose Line Is It Anyway and the Drew Carey Live show, but she worked on Hollywood Squares one time. Why, yes, I did. Yeah. yeah just one episode. Just one episode. Yeah. So there might be a story there. Yeah. But we won't dish too much dirt because we don't want to get in trouble or incriminate ourselves. There you go. And so if you have any questions, you could certainly send us an email if you want to find out more about 
Casey Undercover or Whose Line or when Rick did Seinfeld or any of those things. Or like when I worked with Kiefer Sutherland on 24. <laughs> Actually, there's a story <laughs> I might tell one. right there. And so let us know if you have any questions. So this is kind of our uh, Valentine's Day episode and we didn't do anything lovey-dovey on it. We didn't. It's really not the most romantic episode we've <laughs> ever done. <laughs> but, you know, being entertainers, we oftentimes are not celebrating holidays on the holiday because we've got gigs and stuff. Which is good news. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what we'll do? The next episode, we'll make that kind of our Valentine's Day episode because I'm working on a story about a couple falling in love back in the 50s. Yes. And it's a very sweet story. So that will be, you can save it up for like a belated right. Valentine's Day. And why don't Day. we put one of your songs at the end of the episode? There Laura? you go. Because you've got some love songs because they're all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a fantasy world I live in there. So we'll see you next time. We hope you have a lovely Valentine's Day because, you know, the world needs more love in a big way. Yep. Happy Valentine's Day. We're going to make out now. (laughs) 